Go ahead and turn your Bibles to the book of Colossians chapter 3, and as always, if you arrived here today without a Bible, we'd like for you to follow along, and there should be one in front of you underneath the seat. If there isn't, if you need a Bible, if you'll raise your hands, the ushers will bring one to you. There's somebody there, and somebody up here as well, so two of them. There's somebody else up here. As they're bringing Bibles, uh, once a month we have a ministry, our door-to-door ministry. They stake out a a, a area in the local neighborhoods, and they go, and they just go for the purpose of sharing the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, it's one of those ministries that is a sparse ministry, but it's a ministry that the leaders have been very dedicated to. We're going out next Saturday. My wife and I will be going out as well with them, but I thought I'd have the leader, Chris, come up and just say a few things concerning door-to-door ministry. Chris Darby. Microphone working? Okay. Um, I told Pastor Mike before I came up here, I said, I'm nervous. And uh, the words of wisdom he gave me was good. <laughs> so, um, yes, door-to-door ministry, we meet um, the last Saturday of every month at 9 o'clock in the morning. And uh, we've all heard multiple times, as Pastor Mike comes up here, the importance of sharing our faith with our neighbors. It can be through door-to-door ministry. It can be through street witnessing. It can be at work. And door-to-door ministry is just one of those ways in which we can go and reach the neighborhood. Um, and the door-to-door ministry, everybody, is sharing your faith. But it's so much more than that because when we go out, there's people out there who need prayer. There's people whose family members are dying. Last week we went out, and you know, or last month we went out, and there was a gentleman there who didn't speak English. Now, luckily, my family came with me, and my wife was there to speak to him in Spanish. And um, he had just lost his wife, and he had just lost a brother not too long ago. And she was able to sit there, and I pray, and my wife goes, I don't know how to say those words in Spanish. (laughs) So it kind of convicted her to learn a little bit more Spanish to share with other people. Um, I also brought my kids, Pastor Mike's wife came with us as well. And my son, my four-year-old son, you guys have seen him up here, he's the one who tries to jump off the stage and cries when he doesn't get medals. And, um, (laughs) but... He acted like our field general. He's out there and he's just saying, hey, we got to get to this door. He's like, come on, Dad, let's go, let's go. So we had no time to talk. It was just go to the next door and speak to the next people. And we did. We were blessed by that. And when I was looking up door-to-door ministry to get ideas for door-to-door ministry, the first sentence that I read on one of the websites, it says, the thought of walking up to a stranger's door and share the gospel is enough to send the bravest of us into a severe panic attack. And... uh, it's true. I get nervous and scared every time I go out there. But when I read God's word, I, I read of, you know, stories of courage. David and Goliath, we shared that before we went out last week. And we see, see just, you know, the courage that I had to go out there and face a giant. And as I was listening, I was thinking of that Casting Crown song, The Voice of Truth. And they're talking about all these men shaking in their armor. And here's David who goes down to fight Goliath. And I think that's an awesome song. So I was just thinking of that when I think of the David and Goliath, and the courage it took for him to get out there. And the verses I took for today, when I wanted to share you guys, was for, um, from John chapter 14, verses 5 and 6. And it says, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how, you can, how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And when we're out there doing door-to-door ministry, you run into this question a lot. Um, you guys have seen some of it through the Living Waters with uh, Kurt Cameron and Ray Comfort, where people, they'll say, hey, I'm a good person. But Jesus never instructed as her, that the way to get to heaven. You don't get to heaven by being a good person. You get there through Jesus Christ because he is the way. And that's the question. When, when Thomas was asking, people don't know the way to heaven. Um, Jesus Christ tells them, I'm the way. And it's about him, him dying on the cross that we have that way to get to heaven. And that's what we share with people when we go out. A lot of people, hey, how do you know you're getting to heaven? Oh, I'm a good person. I've done this. I've done that. But we all know the Bible says no one's good. 
And we just share that with them, and we just we give them that assurance that there is salvation in Jesus Christ, that that is our way to heaven. And just in closing, I was reading this book um, from uh, Voice of the Martyrs and DC Talk, and it's called Jesus Freak. And I was reading about it, and there was this guy named Zahid from Pakistan. And it was, I think it was in 1986. And um, his life was reflective of Paul's. Paul would, uh, you know, Paul was killing Christians, persecuting Christians. So was this guy. He was a young Muslim priest, and he's, he's persecuting Christians. One time he's chasing Christians down, and a Bible falls. And as they're running away, he goes and he picks up this Bible. He says, I'm going to read this Bible so that way I can contradict what these Christians are saying. So that way I can gain knowledge, and I can show my knowledge to all of, you know, his, his Muslim friend and family members. So he takes this Bible. For four nights straight, a light was shining in his room. And he said, Zahid, why do you persecute me? He said, who are you? And the only words that came that was said, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And for four nights this happened. On the fourth night, he finally knelt down and accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And as soon as he does that, he runs home and he tells his family members. He tells his, his family. He tells his friends. This guy, Jesus Christ, this one who's our Savior. And uh, what they do is they send him to trial. Under Sharia law, it's blasphemy to do that because he was a Muslim. Now he's become a Christian. Okay? Under Sharia law, he was sentenced to be hung. So he said, as he's sitting there being ready to be hung, he has his, the noose around his neck. He said the only thing he wanted to do, his last words to be heard, were that preaching to his fellow countrymen that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And at that moment, somebody comes running in, and he's been acquitted of all charges. Now, he takes that, and he goes from village to village, and he shares that with everybody, his story. And he also shares the story of Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. So he gets to share that with his countrymen still to this day. Um, or if he had, you know, the story was in 1986. But um, that's kind of what we do with door-to-door ministry. We haven't had to that extent. None of us has had a noose around our necks or anything, but we can share Jesus Christ to our neighbors in the neighborhood. And so if the Lord is putting it on anybody's heart to go out, we do meet on Saturday mornings at 9 o'clock for devotion, and then we hit the streets. Have a good day. Go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter 3, we'll be picking up at verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Father, once again, as we open your word, we pray that you would guide us through it. I pray, Father, for the parts that are applicable to our lives, the individual lives that are here, that, Father, you would make them real and accessible. And so, Father, we just thank you that you're mindful of us, that you have given us your word. I pray, Father, that we would hear it and that we would have a mind to do it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. My father was a man who could work with his hands, and he worked with his hands very well. When he retired, he decided he wanted to build clocks, and he wanted to build clocks out of wood. He didn't just look up plans. He went to the library and learned how clocks worked and designed the gear sizes and shapes and all of those things, and he made a wooden clock, completely wooden clock. We have one of them at our house. It was like that all the time we were growing up. My dad was fixing cars and working on things around the house, and I was his gopher. I was the one who had to hold this, hold the flashlight, get the wrench, quit shining the light in my eyes, shine it on the work, and that kind of a thing. And, well, because of that, he never let me do anything. I I always got to watch and help, but never actually do. And so I had a lot of desire. Those things that I saw him do, I wanted to do. A lot of desire, though, with no practice. As a result, I became very good at taking things apart, not so good at 
putting them back together. Putting them back together is a very important part of the process. So, with the intent of fixing something or improving it, in the end, I would either make it useless or almost impossible for Dad to put it back together. And my point here is, when disassembled, an object is useless for its intended purpose. Although, disassembly can be necessary and even the first step in a process to making something better. In the book of Colossians, up until now, we've seen the truth about Jesus Christ in chapter 1. We saw the truth about truth in chapter 2. And now we're looking at the truth about the Christian life in chapters 3 and chapter 4. Now, previously in chapter 3, we saw in verses 1 through 4 that we are to be a people who are heavenly minded. Verse 5 says, therefore, and so that relates us back to what was said in verses 1 through 4. Since we are heavenly minded, there is to be a disassembly of our lives. And we saw that last week in the things that we are to put off. We saw in verse 5, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanliness, passions, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Down at verse 8, put off these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Now we're moving to the next step. Now today, I don't really think that you're going to leave this place having learned anything. Seems like a funny thing for a teacher to say. Why? Because the study is not about what we do not know, but the study is about what we should never forget. We all know these things, but sometimes we willfully forget them, or we put them aside. We all know these things. You probably learned these things in elementary school or in Bible class at a church that you were in when you were a kid. But again, these things that we can never forget and we never graduate past. I have three things today that we have to always remember. The first thing is your life is to be built upon your identity from Christ. Secondly, we're going to look at unity and how it is to be centered or cemented into our church by the love of Christ. And then thirdly, all of our activity is to be done in the name of Christ. Romans chapter 13 verse 14 tells us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. And so what did I do? Well, this morning I woke up and I had my sleeping clothes on. But I wasn't going to come here and sleep. Some of you do do that, but I, I can't do that. And so, since I wasn't coming here to sleep, I took off my sleeping clothes and I put on my church clothes, because that's what it was that I was going to be doing. In my old life, I need to take off the old man, how the old man is, well, who he is and how he is perceived, because I am to be perceived that way no more. But it's not good enough just to take off the old man, I must put on the new man, because I am to be perceived in a new way. Just as Chris said, going door to door, we are to be a witness. When people see us or see our manner of life, they are to see Jesus Christ. But that is just to be a lure, because at some point we also have to tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now, in between verses 5 and 11 and verses 12 and 17, we've come to a place where we are most vulnerable. Vulnerable. See, if you follow last week's study and do not follow it up with this week's study, spiritually speaking, you're in grave danger. See, by putting off the old man in his ways, what you have done is you have created a vacuum in your life. Now again, this is somebody who's taken off the old man but has not put on the new man and you're kind of stuck betwixt and between. And that's a horrible place to be because you are not right in the sight of God. You're not walking in victory in Christ just because based upon what you're not doing or what you are no longer doing or who you no longer are. It's all about being proactive in our walk in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so by putting off the old man in his ways, you've created a vacuum in your life. And the question is, what are you going to fill that vacuum with? Because make no mistake about it, that vacuum is going to be filled with something it's a phenomena of creation that vacuums yearn to be filled. If you do not fill the void with godliness, it will be filled with godlessness. Look at the example. I, I've been on diets before, and one of the diets that I've tried is don't eat. And so, you don't eat. Or you eat very little, just enough to get by, and you get the headaches and a little lightheadedness, and you get the stomach pains, 
after a couple of days, you can kind of get used to it. You know, if you, if you really have the willpower, and I've had, and just the focus to do that. And so you're doing pretty good. Can you start losing weight? And you're starting to achieve your goals, and it's going pretty good. But at some point, you see the tiramisu. And the tiramisu looks so good. And you're just going to have one little whiff of it. You're not going to eat any of it, but as you stick your nose in it, your mouth follows. And as you eat the tiramisu, you don't just have a bite, you eat the whole thing. And then you wash it down with a gallon of ice cream, and then all of a sudden you're worse than you were before. And the lost weight seems to come back, and it brings some friends along with it. And you're twice the man you used to be. See, it's when you put off all of the garbage that you were eating, you've got to eat, and you've got to eat healthy. It's not about eating less, it's about eating what is right. And it's the same thing with putting off the old man. And in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 11, verse 24, there's a guy who, spiritually speaking, decided to get better. And he decided to stop doing, he decided to, to put off the old man, stop doing all those things of the flesh. But the problem with this guy is he never put on the new man. He was kind of stuck betwixt and between. And there was that vacuum in his life, and it didn't end well. Luke chapter 11, verse 24 When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finding none. He says, I will return to my house from which I came. So the idea here is this is a man who has cleaned house. And the idea is that there was this unclean spirit that lived within him and it's been cast out. But now this unclean spirit comes back. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. This guy has cleaned up his act. But verse 26 when he goes and takes with them seven, seven other spirits, uh, more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. And so just as the person who buries his face in the tiramisu, this person, he, he's put all these things off, and he's staying away, and he's building his righteousness based upon what he's not doing, but he's of the flesh. And anybody here is a born-again believer, even the best of us recognizes the attraction of the flesh. And there's that attraction. Well, this man has not put on Christ, so he's even more vulnerable. Remember, there's a vacuum there. And is he going to fill it with godliness or godlessness? Well, the idea is he went back and he was worse than he was before. And you've seen that in people. Hey, Joe Blow came to church. They gave an altar call and he went down there and he gave his life to Christ. Well, he said the prayer. And then after service was over, I just saw a new glow about him. But that was the last time I saw him. Well, what happened to Joe Blow? Yeah, well, you know what? As he was all messed up on this and that, now he's all messed up on 10 other things. He tried the God thing. Either that or he thinks he tried the God thing that, well, he thinks he's got some kind of life insurance or maybe fire insurance that now he's going to heaven just because he repeated a prayer, but he's worse off than he was before. Again, he has that void. It's created that vacuum. So if you have put off the image of who you used to be, verses 5 and 8, you must put on the image of who you are to be. We'd be starting at verse, well, look at verse 10. That's the image of who we are to be. It's very clear. And have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Well, going backwards in chapter 1, verse 15 to 17, we know that to be the Lord Jesus Christ. I am to put on the image of Christ. So now that we have put off our grave clothes, we must put on our grace clothes. So first, we see that our life is to be built upon our identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 12, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. This refers back to verse 11, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in you all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on, become this. It doesn't matter who you were. It doesn't matter your past identities because we would so latch on to our past identities. Maybe that was in skin color. Maybe it was in economic clash or social standing or whatever it might be. And all of those mean, well, they don't mean a hill of beans, in the sight of God who must put on Christ regardless of who you are. We are to put on the new man based upon three basic facts here. Number one, if you're a born-again believer, you must understand and know that you are elected or chosen. 
Now, that's become a dirty word in some denominations, and some denominations have used it improperly. But the fact of the matter is, the Bible tells us, it tells us right there, we are the elect of God. We are the chosen of God. At some point, God saw you yet unformed. God loved you yet unsaved. And God chose you yet unrefined. God saw you as you were perishing and He reached His life down into your life and He saved you. And that's a fact. I didn't seek out God. God sought out me. Just as God pursued Adam and Eve in the garden, where were were they after they sinned? Where were they? They were hiding in the bushes. And again, I really believe that that was not an apple tree. We don't know where they got an apple tree thing from. I really believe they ate off a fig tree. Because what were they covered with? They were covered with fig leaves. And isn't it that how you feel when you sin? Your sin is just all stuck all over you. I really believe that that's where they were. But that's the state that they were in as God was seeking them out. He was seeking them out in the midst of their sinful state. And so it was, they were pursuing God. God was pursuing them. I can look back at my life and I can see that it wasn't just God waiting for me. God pursued me. He pursued me as He brought people into my life. Greg, this guy when I was a contractor who we used to make fun of, he was one of those Jesus freaks. But there was the conviction in the things that he said. It was God pursuing me through him. Friends that he brought into our life. God pursued me. Times that I could have died as I was partaking in the verses 5 through 10 things, or 5 through 9 things. And God pursued me in the midst of all of that because God had desires upon me. I was spiritually dead, but God made me alive. And it's the same with all of us. Why? Why would God do that? Well, Pastor Mike, because he wanted you as a pastor. No, it wasn't any of that. It wasn't anything to do with that. We're told specifically in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4-6, through 6, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Christ Jesus to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace by which He made us acceptable in the Beloved. He saved me just simply for the good pleasure of His will. Your salvation brought pleasure to the heart of God And to me, that's just an amazing thing. Now, most of you, I wouldn't have picked. But God did. I tell you the truth, I wouldn't have picked myself. But God did. And that's the fact of the matter. And that's where your sufficiency is to be. Your sufficiency is to be in Christ. Not you and your abilities, but what God did. Pastor Mike, so are we reformed now? No, it's not about that. We, we so start classifying these things and we ruin the doctrine. God pursued me. And I know that I rejected His pursuit for a lot of my life. Finally, I surrendered my will to His will. And it could have been that which I rejected all of my life because so many people have. How many people do you know that God is pursuing and pursuing and pursuing and they're just, uh, just, just an Eeyore? Oh, probably going to die today. Life is so hard. You know, they always have that black cloud over their head. Mostly it's because there's conviction in their life because of the rejection of God. God's pursuing them. There's people out there who God is pursuing and we need to go out there and we need to tell them about Lord Jesus Christ because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. After God chose you, secondly, God made you holy. Holy? I'm not always so holy, Pastor Mike. Well, we've attached that connotation to that word, but holy means to be separated. You're separated from the world, and you're separated from those who are going to be judged. We see that in Matthew chapter 25 as Jesus separates the sheep from the goats. You've been separated from the world that is perishing. How do you know if you are holy? Well, let me ask you this way. We looked at this Wednesday morning in our study of the book of Revelation. How do you know if you're holy? Well, if today was the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, where is your dining reservations at? Where are your dining reservations at? Would you have been dining at the great marriage supper of the Lamb with the Lord Jesus Christ? Or would you be dined upon by the birds of the great day of defeat? Either way, you're invited to a meal. Either way, it's going to be grand and glorious. Believers will be going to dinner with the Lord, 
Unbelievers, unbelievers will be the dinner. You can read this in your spare time in the book of Revelation chapter 19. But either way, you're going to be one or the other. Is your life hidden in Christ? Have you come into that right relationship with Christ where Christ encompasses your thinking and your doing? It's then that you know that you are truly holy or separated from the world. Everything that you do, do you run it through the Word as God has caused the Word to blossom within your life? Now again, it doesn't matter what you're doing, but everything should flow from the Word of God within your life. Because as a born-again believer, you've been given a different worldview. You look at the thing that's been going on, and I don't know what kind of meeting it is, I've just kind of seen it on the news, but the Pope has made some kind of proclamation of acceptance of gay marriage. And now they're fighting it out with the bishops and and the thing. And I'm thinking, how can you possibly vote for that? If you have a Christian, biblical worldview, you do love the homosexual. Don't get me wrong. But that's not God's view of marriage. That's just the way it is. It's very clear in the Scriptures. So everything... As I'm raising up my children, as I'm sending them off to school, as I'm explaining the things of creation to them, whatever it might be, as I'm at the workplace conducting business, it's all got to be done because I am somebody who's been separated from the world and the Word of God works through me in the decisions that I make and the things that I do in every arena of my life. Thirdly, put on the new man because you're elected. Secondly, because you are holy And then thirdly, because He loves you. Why does God love you? And I bet you, if you were honest with yourself, you could think of reason upon reason upon reason why He wouldn't love you. Well, we've been given an example in Deuteronomy why God loves us, because it's the same reason that He loved Israel. Why would God love Israel? What is so special? You take God out of the equation, what's so special about Israel? I mean, really, what is so special about Israel? Well, as soon as you say that, you've got to look at yourself in the mirror and what's so special about me. And so this does equate. In Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 8, it says, The Lord did not set His love on you, nor chose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because He would keep the oath which He swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so at some point, God looked upon you, had compassion upon you, He pursued you, and now He has set His love upon you as an adopted child of His through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, because of these things, therefore, there's no longer Greek nor Jew, that doesn't matter anymore. There's no longer circumcised or circumcision, or uncircumcised. That doesn't matter. doesn't matter if you're a barbarian or Scythian. Any Scythians here? A Scythian is a Russian, or at least somebody from that area. doesn't matter if you're slave or free, but Christ is all in all. Therefore, so you are now the elect of God, holy and beloved, and because of that, put on... Well, now we go through the list. Remember, there's a vacuum, there's a void. Because we put off the old man... Now we see what we are to put, what we are to fill that void, that vacuum with. And the first thing is tender mercies. Tender mercies, that word means to have bowels of compassion. Do you have bowels of compassion? Do you have compassion that when you see somebody hurting or somebody unsaved or somebody dying, that it just touches you deep inside? The bowels of a person back then were the deep inside portion of a person. This is to have a constant attitude of not giving people what they deserve, but giving them that which they don't deserve. To have compassion upon the lost. To have, the, have compassion upon the unsaved. That person, Uncle Harry, as you've been sharing the Lord with him every Thanksgiving, and he's basically been laughing in your face and making fun of you, but still having compassion upon him that you would still speak the gospel to him so that he would be saved. My father, there was a period of time that I lost compassion for him. He was contrary to the gospel and finally didn't want to hear it anymore. It's like, fine, then go to hell. I I don't mean it like that. But as far as I'm concerned, you know what? Then that's what's going to happen. And had that mindset. It's not very compassionate. It wasn't compassionate at all. But then God worked upon my heart. As he worked upon my heart and stirred my heart, I shared the gospel with my dad 
one more time and he got saved. If I didn't have compassion, I often wonder, would my father be in heaven today? I know God was going to save him, but I need to see the responsibility that I have in my life. Remember, put on has to do with a conscience, deliberate act. You have to put on. It's not something that is just going to happen. You're not just going to develop bowels of compassion or tender mercies. It's something that you have to make the effort for, and God will enable you. Secondly, put on kindness. This is an outward expression of God's love acting upon my personality that is reflected to others. And we see this in God. It's what God used in my life to bring me and you into the kingdom of heaven. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Do you despise the riches of His goodness? And that word goodness can be translated kindness. Do you despise the riches of His kindness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? David, wanting to express the kindness of God, was looking for somebody to be kind to. And he found one of David's relatives, Mephibosheth. But he understood that, well, kindness isn't really ever seen, and it's not really known until you exercise it upon somebody else. You can't be a kind person unless you're kind to somebody. It has to be expressed in an outward action. And again, this is something that I have to be of the mindset that I have to put on, that I have to do, that people need to know me as a kind person. Because you've known people who are born-again believers and they're out there and they call the Bible their sword, as the Scripture does, and they're out there chopping heads off. And it's that kind of person that, oh, here he comes again, and you, you, you avoid because you know he's just going to come and he's just going to beat you up with the Bible. That's not a kind person and he's improperly, he's improperly exercising his Christian faith. Next, put on humility or humbleness of mind. Proper perspective of self, a proper estimation of who you really are. As a Christian, knowing who you are apart from God and all that you will ever be is from God, that it's not of yourself. Unfortunately, even in Calvary chapels, we take these pastors and we put them on pedestals and no man can stand upon a pedestal. And it's even worse when somebody climbs up upon a pedestal. It's about Jesus, and it's always about Jesus, and it will always ever be about Jesus Christ. He's the one who deserves to be upon a pedestal. We deserve judgment, but we got grace. And we see that God God is our all and is in us all. And it's all about Him. Because the proper estimation of who I am, well, it's when I came to that proper estimation of who I am that I was able to repent and get right with God. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Just think of what a great place church would be if everybody in the church was esteeming, considering everybody else to be better than him. What, I mean, just think of the, the, the place that the church would be. Everybody would be serving one another. Everybody would be conversing with one another. Everybody would like to be together with one another. It's when I start thinking that I'm a little bit better than you or closer to God than you are and that we start, well, developing these, once again, these cliques and clubs within the body of Christ and the church becomes divided. Put on meekness. A meek spirit is the only one that can wield the power of God. A meek spirit is the only one that God is truly going to use for His glory. Meekness is the ability to use power, but under control. If I'm a meek person, I'm not going to use the power of God in order to lord it over anybody, but I'm going to use it to give glory to God because I know there is no glory that is due to me. James 3.13 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of of wisdom. Put on long-suffering. Patience is how we are to wait on a situation. Long-suffering is how we are to wait upon a person. And again, the word is not suffering. The word is long-suffering. How long does long-suffering have to be? Just as long is as necessary. How long was it for you? And what I mean is, how long did God suffer with you? How old were you when you got saved? Was it 20 years? Was it 30 years? 40 years? 50 years? God put up with your 
unclean presence in His creation for that long because He loved you and wanted to see you saved. God suffered very long for you. Ought you not to be long-suffering with whoever it is in the church that irritates you? Whoever it is in the neighborhood that, that, that just drives you crazy at times? Long-suffering. Continuing to share. Continuing to be that witness for Jesus Christ that they may come into the kingdom of God. Waiting on, this is waiting on somebody as Jesus waited upon you. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Paul just gave his testimony. And what was his testimony? He used to go and he used to throw born-again believers in jail because of their faith in Jesus Christ, probably even killing some. But he says, God was long so God should have killed me, Paul realized. I was the chief of all sinners. What could be worse than, than, than persecuting somebody, Paul's mindset would be, for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? And just as God should have brought judgment upon my life, he was long-suffering because he wanted to use me as a witness as a witness to what God is able to do in somebody's life, but a witness also in how God is so patient with people. Verse 13 in Colossians 3, bearing with one another, and you're not really bearing with one another unless they're unbearable. They have to be unbearable. And and, and so if if that person is just a a horrible person, if that person just drives you crazy, then you've got a great opportunity to bear with one another and be obedient to God's Word. Praise God for the unbearable people within the church. Forgiving one another. Now, this is a hard one. Turn over to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. It's not on the board. Matthew chapter 18, verse 35. This is the uh, instruction that the Lord gave about forgiveness. There was a servant who was forgiven a debt that he could never repay, and he went to somebody who owed him and cast him into jail, and then he was rebuked by his master. Anyway, my point is just in the last verse. I, I, I haven't really noticed this so much before, this word or this phrase, but in verse 35, it says, So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespass. Notice it says, from his heart from his heart see what we got to be we're of the mindset that fred over here he's done me wrong and you know what i've just been so upset about fred and the bible says i have to forgive so i've decided that i'm going to forgive fred well fred doesn't know that he's done me wrong but i need to let fred know everything here fred i forgive you fred says what have you forgiven me of because you're a jerk and you know you just irritate me and you've done all of these things and then you download all this garbage on the Fred and Fred leaves and he's, Fred's bummed out and think, I never knew, I had no idea. And you're leaving think, huh, Lord, I did it, I forgave. It's not how it works. Have you ever forgiven somebody without dumping all the junk upon them? Just, just that, yeah, they did, and we're giving it to them, they did do you wrong. But it says, I need to forgive them I need to forgive them from my heart. No, they need to know. No, they don't need to know everything. God's doing a work on them. And if you exhibit fruits of forgiveness into their lives, God is telling us that that's the ministry. That's the ministry, and that's what God is going to use to change them. Because when you dump all the junk upon them, you haven't forgiven them. You've just taken the burden off of you, and you went and dumped it on them. Now, if you forgive them from the heart, then God takes the burden. And then the burden is no longer there. But if you dump it on them, then the burden is still there. And at the first opportunity they have, they're going to dump it back on you. And then you've got division within the body of Christ, and you've got the messes that we're always having to deal with. And so I need to put this on. I need to put this mindset on of forgiveness, but forgiveness from the heart. From the heart, that I would truly be a forgiving person. So whoever it is, that when I even said forgiveness, that person's name came into your mind. You need to forgive them. You need to forgive them from your heart. And they don't need to know every dirty, rotten thing that they've ever done. You just simply need to forgive them, and then you need to act accordingly. You need to exhibit the fruits of forgiveness into their lives. Back to Colossians chapter 3. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another, 
If anyone has, now this is kind of a catch-all in in case the legalist comes here and, you know, okay, I'll do this, this, and this, but it looks like I don't have to do that, that, and that. But he says, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. How did Christ forgive you? Yet, while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you because you were ungodly. How did Christ forgive you? He forgave you through grace. By grace, you've been saved. By grace, he did not give you what you deserve. We so want to do these things, but we want to add the punishment too. God forgave without adding the punishment. Matter of fact, what did Christ do? He took the punishment upon himself. Can you forgive that way to that magnitude? It's that mindset that we are to have. It's that which we are to be working towards. Nobody here is going to do that in perfection, but that's what you need to be striving for. Striving for the mind of Christ and the ability that Christ gives us so that, again, the body of Christ will be strengthened. And so, what is it that greases the skids, if you will, for these? Well, secondly, we have our new identity. Now there is to be a unity that is to be cemented into our church by the love of Christ. Verse 14. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Love is going to be that influence in our lives that is going to drive us in these things. Now, most of you know this, but again, today is a day of remembering. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, it speaks of love. He says in verse 13, verse 1, well, actually, back up. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31, earnestly desire the best gifts. Well, that's a commercial for tonight. Tonight we're going to be looking at the gifts of the Spirit. If you ever want to know what your gifts were, we're going to be looking at this. But he says, and yet I will show you a more excellent way because you can exercise gifts without love and they will have absolutely no effect. And so he goes on in chapter 13, verse 1, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Even though I have spiritual gifts, but if I exercise my spiritual gifts without love, they're just, I'm just an irritant. They're of no use. Verse 2, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and he's saying here, even though I know the Word of God backward and forward, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. I'm of no use to God. Verse 3, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, you can give every penny you have to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, you can even sacrifice your own life, but have not love, it profits me nothing. It's of nothing in the sight of God. Love is to be the influence that drives us in our Christian lives. And you're going to have influences in your life. I got an influence in my life yesterday. I slept in a little bit. My wife and I spent some time together, and I had some stuff to do around the house that I had to get done. And so after eating breakfast and everything, I drank my two cups of coffee, as I always do. And on Saturday, she makes me these waffles. And and anyway, it was all good. And so I go to the hardware store, and I'm gone for a little while. And so I'm coming back. It took me a while there. I had to go to a place in Pomona. Driving back, it's about 10 o'clock, and I just don't feel good. I got a headache, and... Just not, I'm kind of achy and and just not feeling good. And so I I get home and just think, oh, I just got to get past this. And my wife goes, you know what? I don't feel good. And I'm thinking, "Uh uh-oh. And I go, what's the matter? She says, I got a headache and I'm achy and da-da-da-da. And I'm thinking, oh, maybe we caught something. Then it kind of hit me. We had the prayer meeting the night before. And on the way to the prayer meeting, we had to stop by Fresh and Easy because we were out of coffee. She got decaf. And so we ran to Starbucks and we had the, you know, the emergency injection. But I'm thinking, this is pitiful. This is pitiful. I'm addicted to caffeine. Well, that's okay, it's the Christian addiction. But nonetheless, you just, it, it had just, it's amazing the profound influence that it had upon us. Well, love is to have a profound influence upon your Christian life because without it, you're of absolutely no use to God. When you develop an ability to love others sacrificially, you will see changes come over you and you will see changes come over those who are around you. Verse 15, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts 
to which also you were called in one body and be thankful. A little bit of a switch from character to conduct. Godly character produces confirmed godly conduct. How do I know if my conduct is godly? The Holy Spirit will either confirm it, usually does so with peace, even in the midst of a situation that's not peaceful, or convict your heart, the inner man and the inner mind. When it says here, again, in verse 15, and the peace of God will rule in your hearts. That word rule can be translated umpire. And the idea is a peaceful heart will make a determination based upon a set of rules concerning issues in your life. The peace of God will be your umpire based upon what God has called you to do. If you're doing what God has called you to do, the peace that you have in your life will confirm that you're right with God. I was watching, and maybe some of you did, the Notre Dame-Florida game last night, Florida State game last night. And it was, uh, there was just a matter of seconds left. Florida was up by, I don't remember, let's just say five points, I can't remember. If Notre Dame scores a touchdown, they win. And they're about on the four-yard line. It's fourth down. There's time enough for one, maybe two plays, but it's fourth down. And so they run their play, quarterback goes back, guy's wide open in the end zone, hits the guy, touchdown, they win. But wait a minute. They ran an illegal play. They had one of the receivers go and block some of the guys. I'm not going to get into all this, but some of the guys in the backfield. And anyway, they, they blocked them from guarding the receiver, and the official saw that, and he, he threw the flag. And he got a 15-yard penalty for it, and they ended up losing the game. They thought they had it won, but they lost, and they were in misery. If they would have done it according to the rules and scored a touchdown, they'd have peace, but they didn't. And it's the same thing. As I conduct this Christian life, if I'm doing it how God has called me to do it, if I'm obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm going to have peace in this life. And unfortunately, there's so many people within the body of Christ that are not doing it how God has called them to do it. Again, this needs to be a worldview. And that's why you don't have peace in your life. It doesn't matter if things are falling apart because there's going to be times in all of our lives when things are falling apart. But it's the peace of God that surpasses understanding that as I'm obedient to what God has called me to do and who God has called me to be, that I find contentment in this life. Again, out in the world, things aren't going to get better. They're going to get worse. I've read to the end. I've read to the end of the Bible. But you can find peace through obedience. And I look at my grandchildren. And if the Lord tarries, I'm wondering what things are going to be like after I die. After I go to be with the Lord. And what are things going to be like for my children and my grandchildren? Well, it's the same thing. If they're obedient to the Lord, it doesn't matter. Because they're going to have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. Thirdly, we have a new identity. There is to be a unity that leads us to activity. Verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. From this life will flow teachings, admonishings, or warnings, psalms, singing of the word of God, hymns, singing to God, spiritual songs, songs sang to one another based upon God's word. And we see that we'll have this new identity, we'll see that we will have unity, and there will be activity in the body of Christ. Now, you don't have to go into the fellowship area and look into one another's eyes and start singing songs. But what do you do when you're just joyful in your life? It, it's Andy, Andy Griffith's thing. So, you, you, you know, but, you know, there's just kind of a song breaks out in your life somehow, some way. And that's the idea. That's the idea. It's not just about worshiping together. It's just about having that constant spirit of worship about you because, well, God is so good. Things around here are so hard, but God is so good. God is so good. And it all comes about because you have first put off the old man. But that's not good enough. You have to put forth the effort to put on the new man. Just as surely as you took off your night clothes, you put on your day clothes. And you're perceived by how you dress for what you're going to do. If I go over to your house at night and you've got night clothes, I'm thinking, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to come over so late. It looks like you're ready for bed. But if you put on your morning clothes or your day clothes, it looks like you're ready to start your day. And we need to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I need to take off Mike, because Mike is all torn up. He's got holes in his knees, and it's dirty and greasy and oily, and just needs to be thrown away. And he was. He was dead. He died. 
But now there's a new one. There's a new Mike made new in the Lord Jesus Christ who needs to now live for Christ, to put on Jesus Christ, that when my life is examined, you're not going to see perfection, but you will see a change, and that change will be Jesus Christ. Because I did not leave that vacuum. If you leave the vacuum, it's going to be filled with ungodliness. If you fill the vacuum with godliness, though, then God will inhabit your life, and Christ will be seen through you. Father, once again, we just thank you for this word. This word, Father, that guides us in so many areas in so many different directions. But Lord, today was so specific. It wasn't about learning anything new. It's all about doing the things that we know to do, the things that we know to do right, which is the essence of Christian maturity. And so, Father, I pray that you would fill us with your Spirit, that you would enable us in these things. That, Lord, again, our past religious experience was all about don't do this and don't do that. This is about being proactive and moving forward in Christ. And Lord, we see that the ones who are most enabled and most worthy are the ones who understand in the flesh that they can't do anything. And so, Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are a pursuer of men, even in the states that we were in. And Father, I even lift up those who might be here today that you are pursuing. And I pray, Father, if there's anybody here today who has heard this message and understood that God's pursuing, or or, or maybe you're kind of left in the void, maybe you're trying to be a better person and you've put off so many different things, well, again, it's not about that. It's about putting on Jesus Christ. And Lord, if you are pursuing anybody here today, I pray that you would speak to their heart and guide them in their spirit. I pray, Father, that they would have a heart to surrender their spirit to you. And Father, I pray that you would lead them in the means and the ways of repentance, that Father, they would make that determination that they're sorry that the old man is to die and they would put him to death. But also, Lord, I pray that they would be proactive and they would move forward in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we just thank you for this day. We just pray, Father, that your word and this study would become real in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We all stand, please?